Recorded live. Hello, praise Yahweh. This is William Sink. This is Christogenia on Talk Show, December 9th, 2011. Thank you for listening. I have to say a few things before we begin the program. The clouds of November can blow their little horns and toot their little whistles all year long. But in the end, a man cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless he was born from above. Their ringmaster has been circulating a story which describes a Japanese samurai somehow as coming to Christ by an Orthodox priest. It also describes heaven and hell as a state of mind. The story infers that when all the races of the world love one another, that somehow heaven is achieved. It is a popular story in some Catholic and Eastern Orthodox circles, but it should be an abomination to Christian identists. Indeed, the story represents Jewish universalism and New Age Antichrist trash posing as Christianity. In truth, Christ came only for the children of Israel, nobody else. Heaven and hell are tangible states of existence, not mere psychological babblings. Paul said at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die. But to those who are being preserved, to us, it is the power of Yahweh. We simply don't bring the gospel to anyone but the lost sheep in the house of Israel. We don't throw our pearls before swine. We don't give that which is holy under the dogs. That preservation which Paul talks about is a promise made only to the children of Israel when, as Peter states, this earth is destroyed by fire, like the old world was destroyed by the flood. We need never to preach the gospel to anyone else. We just need to have no part with them. The words of our Redeemer, Yahshua Christ, are eternal. They do not change, and I pray that I may never deny them. If you cannot discern in this life what is worthy of our Father in heaven, then you still maintain that same spirit of rebellion which led our ancient ancestors to suffer as they did, and which always destroys our societies, and which has destroyed our society today. My answer to all of my slanderers is this. It's the doctrine, stupid Yet they attack me personally because they cannot counter my arguments honestly. They all have obvious and destructive agendas. At Jeremiah 46:28, Yahweh our God states, Fear thou not, O Jacob thy servant, my servant. Sayeth Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee. Should Yahweh be labeled an exterminationist? Or are the people, the people who throw such extreme labels at those who believe the scripture, merely following the examples of the Jews who hated Christ? I advocate nothing except that we must have a proper understanding of scripture and accept it. Paul said it 2 Corinthians, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. 
For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless, those without the faith? They can't have the faith. And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the Lord, and do not be joined to the unclean, and I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the Almighty Prince, or Lord. The day will come when we shall indeed see that constant admonition of Scripture that we are to be a separate people is certainly not a joke, and Yahweh our God is not kidding. Last week, we discussed the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah. And from, what, from that, we saw the accuracy of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. It must have been from this, since I don't know anywhere else in Scripture where it could possibly be timed. I mean, I know that the Magi saw this star in the east, but we don't have that in our Bibles today. We have no indication from our Scripture today that I've ever seen of what the Magi's, how the Magi's knew of that star and how they followed it. It must have been from Daniel's 70 weeks that so many people in Judea and elsewhere, as it is recorded in the Gospels, such as the woman in the well, by the well in John chapter 4, that they were anticipating the coming of the promised Messiah at that time. We also see that where Christ foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, as he also did in Mark chapter 13, in Matthew chapter 24, in Luke chapter 21, that Daniel had already prophesied that same thing along with the very cutting off of the Messiah himself, the crucifixion of Christ. Now we will commence with Mark chapter 14. Verse 1, And it was Passover, and the feast of unleavened bread after two days, and the high priests and the scribes sought how, seizing him with guile, they could kill him. For they said, Not on a feast, that at no time shall there be an uproar by the people. Christ not only had, as is evident from the texts, thousands of followers winning the hearts and the minds of the people, but he was also winning the battle of ideas. His expositions of Scripture, his proper applications of the law, judgment, and mercy kicked the foundations out from under the pedestal of legalism upon which the Pharisees pretended their authority. Not wanting to lose their status and their titles and their position, but realizing that Christ continually exposed them, rather than repenting, they sought to kill him. From John chapter 11, we can read a fuller account. And I'll read from verse 47 where it says, Then the high priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What do we do, seeing that this man makes many signs? If we should leave him thusly, they shall all believe in him. And the Romans shall come, and they shall take away both our place and our nation. 
Then a certain one from among them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, that's actually a tongue-in-cheek statement, said to them, You do not know anything, nor do you consider that it is advantageous to you that one man should die on behalf of the people and the whole nation not be lost, meaning to them. Yet he did not say this. This is a parenthetical statement at verse 1151. It's a parenthetical statement from John. Yet he did not say this by himself, but being high priest that year, he had prophesied that Yahshua was about to die on behalf of the nation. And not only on behalf of the nation, but that he would also gather into one the children of Yahweh who had been dispersed. Now, the children of Israel are the only people in the Old Testament who were ever called the children of God. Deuteronomy 14.1, you are the children of Yahweh your God. Now, I'd like to say that, that this Sadducee, this high priest, probably was an Edomite. There is indication of that in the Acts, in chapters 4 and 5, as I discussed last week. But if, John, if, if Yahweh can use Balaam's ass to express his will, then an Edomite Sadducee high priest is really not much different. John 11:53. Therefore, from that day, they determined that they would kill him. This was an ongoing plot. If we paid attention to this passage from John, where it says that um, the Romans, that they, these people were asserting that the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation, if all the people believed in Christ. Just like we see all the slander concerning Christianity today spouting from the mouths of the Jews and their proselytes, that Christians, and, and, and Eric Holder actually, there's a YouTube extant where Eric Holder, I, I think he's the Attorney General or something like that, Obama administration, where he's actually saying that Christians are a threat to American governance, that, that's just crazy. Just like we see all this slander concerning Christians today that somehow we're a threat to the government, right from the beginning, that was so. And here we see it in John chapter 11. Yet Christ never taught his followers insurrection against Rome. Rather, he taught them to obey God while giving to Caesar what it was that belonged to Caesar. But the Pharisees wanted more. They wanted the very hearts and the minds of the people. Through the temple, they commanded those hearts and minds at that time. And today they have that again. Today they have the hearts and the minds of the people through their television and through their media. And once again, they despise true Christians who separate themselves from the world and condemn it. Like Peter says, they hate us for not wanting anything to do with their sin. While they are astonished, they blaspheme that you're not running together in the same excess profligacy with them. 1 Peter 4.4 4. Yet, there are even many so-called Christians today who think that Christ was somehow encouraging the undermining of the power of Rome. He certainly was not. That might disappoint some people. But the boundaries and the duration of the might of the Roman Empire had already been predetermined by God. Referring to the Adamic race 
of Genesis chapter 10, we see the words of Paul in Acts chapter 17, where he says of Yahweh, and he made from one, meaning from Adam, every nation of men, meaning the children of Adam, to dwell upon the face of all the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements. All of these things being determined and uttered well in advance. And, and we see it throughout Daniel chapter 2, throughout Daniel chapter 7, the, the, the procession of great empires that God ordained to rule over men. The two beasts in Revelation 13, that God, Yahweh God, ordained to rule over men. All of these things being determined well in advance. The word of God does not change. And therefore, Christ could not have been teaching insurrection against Rome. That is the Jewish claim in John chapter 11. It is also the Jewish claim today that Christians are somehow trying to overthrow the government is a lie. We, we can't even agree amongst ourselves, never mind agree against, against the beast. It's just not going to happen. It's, let's be real. Christians and Christianity do not advocate the overthrow of world government. They teach in Romans chapter 13, and, and Peter also in his first epistle, that governments are, are, are well, well, at least apathetic, to the people who are good and used by God to punish people that are wicked. Sometimes good people get punished along with the wicked, and, and that too is the will of God, and, and that's a separate topic for a separate night. Christians have to understand that worldly government was ordained by God, and that he will determine when it ends, and it will end. We have that promise in Revelation. That is the ultimate Christian promise that this worldly beast government will end, but God will determine when it ends, not us. That's just the way it is. Mark 14, verse 3. And with his being in Bethany, or Bethania, at the house of Simon the leper, upon his reclining came a woman having a box of pure ointment of spikenard of great value. Breaking the box, she poured it on his head. But there were some getting annoyed between themselves or among themselves. For what has this waste of the ointment occurred? For this ointment was able to be sold for over 300 denarii and to be given to the poor. And they admonished her. Again, in the Gospel of John, we see a fuller account in John chapter 12, verse 3. And I will read it. Then Mariam, taking a pound of pure ointment of spikenard of great value, anointed the feet of Yahshua and wiped his feet off with her hair. Now the house had been filled with, from the odor of the ointment. Then Judas Iscariot, one of his students, he who was going to betray him, says, For what reason has this ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii was practically a year's pay for a soldier at that time. But he said this not because he had care in him for the poor, but because he was a thief and carried the case holding the savings. In other words, he was the group treasurer. Therefore, Yahshua said, Let her be that she would keep this for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor among yourselves, but you do not always have me. This is why we have four Gospels. 
because none of the four writers or the other witnesses they used for sources had a complete perspective on the events which transpired. And even if they had a better perspective, at times what they actually wrote fell short of it, fell short of relating it fully. Peter, at least as Mark records it here, spoke only of some getting annoyed at this event, the woman's use of this precious ointment. Whereas John clearly tells us that the instigator was Judas, who would rather have seen that the ointment was sold so that he could steal the money. It can be discerned that out of empathy for the poor, someone in the room might agree with Judas, not knowing his true intentions. Today, we should think of the Canaanites in the exact same manner which John thought of Judas, and Judas was certainly a Canaanite. Judas was called Iscariot. That name comes from the Hebrew terms Ish and Kerioth, which mean a man of Kerioth. The town of Kerioth was on the original border of Judah and Edomia. It was one of those towns of Judea that the Edomites had moved into after the deportations of Judah. The nature of Judas is revealed when Christ states rhetorically at John 670, Have I not chosen you twelve, yet one from among you is a devil? John again records the words of Christ at John chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. Yahshua says to him, meaning to Peter, He who is bathed does not have need except to wash the feet, but is entirely clean, and you are all clean, but not, and you are clean, but not all. For he knew the man betraying him. For this reason he said that you are not all clean. They were the words of John. Such is the nature of the Edomite Jew. And just like Judas was the treasurer for the apostles, today we have Edomites as treasurers everywhere in our society. So what do you think they've been doing with our wealth? It should be no wonder that Jewish charities are a dime a dozen. It should be no wonder that our economies are being drained through the Jewish central banking system. This is what they do best. And we have failed as a people to heed the warning of Scripture. If you put a Canaanite in charge of your treasury, he's a thief and he wants to steal it. Mark 14.6 But Yahshua said, Allow her to anoint him with the ointment. Why do you cause trouble for her? She has performed a good deed for me. For always do you have the poor among yourselves, and whenever you should desire, you are able to do good for them. But me you do not always have. That which she had, means of, she has done. She has anticipated to rub my body with ointment for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the good message should be proclaimed in all society, also that which she has done shall be spoken for a memorial of her. There are many passages, and this is one, which shows the prescience which Christ had the providence of God in Christ. The apostles rarely discuss, but they repeatedly record 
events which show that Yahshua had known things that no man should possibly have known. Here, not only do we see that Yahshua was certain of his own imminent death, but also that he knew with certainty, and this is the, the more amazing facet of this, he knew with certainty that his gospel message would indeed go out throughout the whole world, and he knew it with great confidence. The mere indication that he was able to know this serves as proof of his immediate connection to God, and that God is true. That these things were foreseen long in advance by a God that can keep his promises. Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. The gospel comes from an old English word that means good news. Often in the Christogenia New Testament, it's translated the good message, because that's what the word means in Greek, literally. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, thy God reigns. That's the gospel message. 700 years before Christ. That's when Isaiah wrote. There was an event recorded in Luke 7.44 where a sinful woman entered into the house of a man named Simon, a Pharisee, and washed Joshua's feet with her hair and anointed him with ointment as he dined there. Joshua did not know that woman intimately from a human perspective before she anointed him and washed his feet. This happened when Yahshua was in a city called Nain, which was in Galilee, as we learned from Luke 7.11. This incident is obviously much earlier in Yahshua's ministry, and it is not the same event. It's a different event which is being described. All of the circumstances of this earlier and different event recorded in Luke chapter 7 are quite different than those found here. In John 11.2, it is said that now it was Mariam who anointed the prince with ointment and wiped off his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So we learned who this woman is here. We learned that Mariam, or Mary in the King James Version, was the woman who anointed Joshua with the ointment in the last, this last week of his ministry. And Matthew chapter 26 also records this event in the same circumstances as John chapter 12, and as Mark chapter 14 does here. However, it must be noted that Matthew and Mark both have this event in the house of Simon the leper. That's a name not seen elsewhere in Scripture. Where in the Gospel of John, this same event takes place in the home of Lazarus, the man whom Christ raised from the dead, whose sisters are Martha and Mariam. Lazarus, as we see in John 11.1, 1, lived in Bethany, or Bethany. And Matthew and Mark both state that Simon the leper lived in Bethany. So from this we may draw one of two conclusions. Either Lazarus is also Simon the leper, that's just his other name, a different name, which is one possible situation, or Lazarus, Martha, and Mariam lived in the same house with 
somebody named Simon the Leper. Perhaps coincidentally, but perhaps not, the man whom Christ called Lazarus, Lazarus in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, recorded in Luke chapter 16, is described as a leper, having sores all over his body. But he was not specifically called a leper. He only has the, it's obvious that he has the, um, the sufferings of a leper, the same effects that leprosy has. While the parable is an allegory, and this man need not actually exist, it still may be the reason why Christ chose to use the name Lazarus for this man in the parable. And if the real Lazarus had been healed by Christ of his leprosy, he may still have borne the name of the leper, though he no longer actually had leprosy. There's one other discrepancy, and it's probably not really a discrepancy, it's just our understanding, right? That this first, you know, the, the difference between Simon the leper and Lazarus is only because that they're probably the same man and we just don't have complete information in any of the Gospels. Luke didn't even record this story of the, that this anointing of Joshua by Mary. But in the Gospel of God, John, I'm sorry, which was written, by all accounts, the Gospel of John was written 60 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. That's a long time. The triumphal march into Jerusalem with Joshua riding on an ass happens one day after this feast with Christ and Lazarus and Martha and Mariam. So this very much complicates our understanding of these things. Does John mean to refer to yet another event? where in chapter 11 of his gospel he said, now it was Mariam who anointed the prince with ointment and wiped off his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick? Or is the chronology of the last weeks in the ministry of Christ simply at a variance in John's gospel as compared with Matthew and Mark? It is unlikely that there were two anointing events where the same subject of the expense of the ointment, the same type of ointment, was raised under the same circumstances. Since Christ was in Bethany often during his final weeks, it is possible that there were indeed several such episodes confounded in the memories of the apostles who recorded these things at a much later time. We've even seen the evidence that Mark was recorded long after the actual events had happened. Or it is possible that there was only one episode of this episode of this anointing, and the chronology was confused by at least one of the apostles, who in this case would be John. While the other explanation, while other explanations may also be imagined, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, these small conflicts actually, to me, prove the veracity of the Gospels by humanizing them. Now, many would eject, reject this opinion, but the facts can't be ignored. The conflict undoubtedly exists and cannot be ignored. The conflict in the chronology, even though the event is only misplaced by about a week in John's Gospel as compared to Matthew's and Mark's. Indeed, the Gospels represent the inspired word of God, and, and the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the fulfillment of prophecy. Yet the occasional revelation of the fallible hand of man helps to demonstrate their authenticity, that this could not have been engineered 
that these must be true accounts, and it also illustrates the fact that they are not sprung from a single source, as many Jewish critics and scoffers would like us to believe. Mark 14, verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, had gone out to the high priests in order that he could betray him to them. And they, hearing it, rejoiced and promised to give him silver. And he sought how he could betray him opportunely. Matthew, in Matthew 26.15, and twice in chapter 27, states that this was 30 pieces of silver. I covered this at length in in Matthew, and, and it's important, I believe, so I'm going to cover it at length again here. Zechariah. I'm going to read Zechariah verses, chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, and I quote, And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. And Yahweh said unto me, Cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was priced at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. Well, the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11 is quite enigmatic. And the Septuagint version helps us to better understand it. We nevertheless see that the 30 pieces of silver are cast to the potter in the temple. In Matthew chapter 27, we learn that Judas, in his consternation, actually did so. In effect, where he cast the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, and they were ultimately used to purchase a field from a potter for the burial of strangers. So the money was literally cast to a potter. It is evident that a potter may have such a field for the mining of clay. Potters need clay in large amounts. So that would leave the field in a shape not easily used for agriculture, and which may be readily, more readily employed for other purposes, such as burials. Very natural. And a very natural fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet during the period when the second temple was built. At the first return of the captives to Jerusalem from Babylon. So most of Israel is long gone. Most of Israel and most of Judah are long gone in the Assyrian deportations. The Germanic tribes are being formed at this time. Zechariah chapter 10 is a prophecy of redemption for Israel and Judah. Of course, nearly all of Israel and most of Judah are dispersed far and wide by the time of Zechariah into both Europe and Asia. At Zechariah 10.6, Yahweh says, And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am Yahweh their God and will hear them. Here we shall read Zechariah chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, and I will intersperse some comments. Zechariah 11.1 Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. This is talking about 
the nation of people. There was a voice of the howling of the shepherds for their glorious spoiled, a voice of the roaring of young lions for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Now, I would say that this cannot be something which occurred in Zechariah's time, because Zechariah's time is a time of the return of the remnant and the rebuilding of the temple and the city, Jerusalem. So it must look forward to a future event. Thus saith Yahweh my God, feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be Yahweh, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith Yahweh, but lo, I will deliver the man, every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king. Now, as we will see in the forthcoming verses, this seems to me to indicate the Roman treatment of Judea in the years before the fall of Jerusalem, those five years of war before the fall of Jerusalem. And we will see my reasons for believing that. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them, which I believe indicates the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. The poor of the flock were those people in Palestine that became Christians. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. I believe this is a reference to the three emperors of Rome who all died being supplanted by challengers the year prior to when Jerusalem was taken. Their names were Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, who all died or were killed in a period of about nine literal months. Then I said, Zechariah 11, 9, then I said, I will not feed you. That that dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. If you read the, the description by Josephus of what the Edomites were doing in the, inside the walls of Jerusalem when Jerusalem was under siege by the Romans, this is a good description of the inhabitants of Jerusalem in its final months. Verse 10, And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I may break my covenant which I had made with all the people. Let me say that the end of the old covenant happened with the death of Christ. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. This describes the good people of Judea who understood the prophecies concerning Christ and turned to the new covenant that was promised. Verse 12, And I said unto them, If you think it good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And Yahweh said to me, Cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I was prized at of them. 
And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. This was the price of Yahweh's betrayal, of Yahshua's betrayal. It was cast into the temple, and the priests took it and gave it to a potter for the field. Then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands, that I might break now, the King James Version here says that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. However, the Septuagint has possession rather than brotherhood. A clear Greek word meaning possession. Let me say that there was no brotherhood between Judah and Israel at this time because most of Israel was long gone. And Yahweh said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor see that that stands still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. From the time of the rebellion and destruction of Jerusalem, Roman emperors had nothing but troubles with the Jews the Judeans. Woe unto the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. As for the Septuagint version of Zechariah chapter 11 in verse 14, where the King James Version says, Brotherhood, the Septuagint has possession. I will break the possession there was no brotherhood in Zechariah's time between Judah and Israel. The tribes had divided and fought with each other ever since the death of Solomon. And therefore, I lean firmly towards the Septuagint reading here, which makes a lot more sense prophetically. In this chapter, we see Yahweh promising the breaking of both the covenant and the possession of Israel and Judah. The old covenant was broken with the death of Yahweh the husband of Israel, on the cross of Christ. After that time, the possession, our possession of that land, would also be broken, and true Israelites would no longer be able to stay in Jerusalem. That's been the case now for probably about 1,500 years, 1,400 years. So it is clear in Zechariah chapter 11, even though some of it seems enigmatic, that the 30 pieces of silver which ended up in the potter's hands and the breaking of the covenant and the destruction of the city, which can only happen upon the death of Yahweh in Christ, are fully related in the prophecy, even if the manuscripts and the translations may cause us some confusion. I'm sorry, I need to drink often. Mark 14, verse 12. And on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when Passover is sacrificed, his students say to him, How do you wish, departing, we may prepare in order that you may eat the Passover? Mark 14, 1 states, It was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread after two days. As Matthew 26.1 also declares that at that same time, just before the feast and the anointing of Joshua by Mariam, that Christ said, 
after two days it shall be the Passover. Now, we do not know exactly how many days transpired between those statements in the feast and this day, which we are told was the first day of unleavened bread. Yet it seems to be either the next day or the day after. And so it must be Passover in the mind of Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the day after the Passover lamb is slaughtered. We could see Exodus chapter 12 or Leviticus chapter 23 for that. While the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the month, I will read Exodus chapter 12, verses 6 through 9. And ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. Remember, the lamb was chosen on the 10th day. That may be the day that Miriam anointed Joshua. And ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night roasted with fire and unleavened bread. With bitter herbs they shall eat it, eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head and his legs, and with the putinance thereof. What a fat. So the day upon which the Passover was actually eaten was, by the way that the Hebrews kept the calendar, the beginning, which is the evening before, the beginning of the 15th day of the month. Therefore, reading Leviticus 23, verses 5 and 6, we should bear in mind that Passover necessarily starts on the 14th day when the lambs are slaughtered, but it is eaten on the 15th day. And I quote, In the 14th day of the month at evening is Yahweh's Passover, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto Yahweh. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Yet Matthew considered the day upon which the Passover should be prepared to be the first day of unleavened bread. And therefore, we see a departure from the exact words of the account of Exodus and Leviticus. It's possible that the preparation day when Passover was to be prepared, which was the evening before it was to be eaten, what was being considered the first day of unleavened bread because it was by that day upon which all the leaven was to be removed from one's home. And we see that in Exodus twelve fifteen. Yet there is an even further departure, which is absolutely evident, and that is that when Christ was crucified, on the day after he had the Passover with his disciples, and he fully believed it was the Passover, that's what he stated, that day was considered by the Judeans to be the preparation day, the day before their own Passover. This dis displays a difference of two days between the two Passovers. John seems to distinguish that difference in the calendar, where he states in John 2.13 that, and I quote, it was near the Passover of the Judeans. 
And again at John 19.42, where he talks of the burial of Christ, he says, So there, on account of the preparation day of the Judeans, because the tomb was near, they had laid Yahshua. By distinguishing the Passover and the preparation day as being of the Judeans, it seems that John did not share these days in common with them. Or otherwise, why would he make that distinction? Here we clearly see that the disciples of Christ esteemed a day for Passover other than the day upon which the Judeans celebrated it. The attitude of the disciples was not at all that they must celebrate Passover early for any reason. And they still had, they were still blind to what Christ told them, and they had no way of knowing the things which were to transpire as they did in the few days yet to come. It is fully evident that there were different calendars even at the time of Christ. That Christ had his calendar and his disciples, and they ate their Passover on a Passover day. And that the Judeans had deviated from that calendar, and they slaughtered Christ on their Passover day. Or the day of preparation before it. When the disciples asked about eating the Passover, there was no indication at all that they thought they were eating Passover on any day other than upon which they thought they should have been eating it. They clearly believed that the Passover was on a different day than that day upon which it was celebrated by the Judeans in Jerusalem. My only point here is to illustrate that there were different calendars in effect at this time. Clifton Emma Heiser has a detailed study of the chronology of the final week of the earthly ministry of Christ and the three days and nights of his entombment, which is entitled Three Days and Three Nights, which is available on his website at Christogenia. I will discuss this at, at greater length next week when we discuss Mark chapter 15, because it affects the time that Joshua was in the tomb. Mark 14, verse 13. And he sends two of his students and says to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water shall meet you. Follow him, and wherever he should enter, you say to the master of the house that the teacher says, Where are my quarters where I shall eat the Passover with my students? And he shall show you a spacious, furnished, prepared room, an upper room, and there you shall prepare it for us. And the students went out and came into the city and found just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Once again here, we see the prescience of God in Christ. Without marvel, the accounts, as this episode is related here in Mark, and in Luke chapter 22, and in the shorter version in Matthew chapter 26, plainly show that the apostles seem to have even taken his foreknowledge, his prescience of these events for granted. There is something else to notice in accounts such as these, which is also evident elsewhere in the Bible. How did God know that that man was going to be in a certain place at a certain time? We being men, we struggle 
between the ideas of the free will of man and the predestination which God has planned for us and the sovereignty of God himself. In truth, men do seem to have free will. And therefore, we must blame our mistakes on nobody but ourselves, because we agree to make them. However, Yahweh being God cannot help but have known from the very beginning every path that we would take in life. He knew long ahead of time of all of our actions and all of our mistakes. Just as we have Esau for a model, that Yahweh hated Esau even before he was born, knowing that, as Paul explains, Esau was a profane man and a fornicator or a race mixer. So in our perception, we have free will, and we are responsible for our own sin, and we seek a reward for what we have done well. However, in truth, all of these things which we experience have been determined by Yahweh God from the beginning. It is evident from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, written over 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, that Christians should indeed still be keeping the feast of Passover. I'll read 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new dough, just as you are unleavened, since also our Passover, Christ, has been sacrificed. Consequently, we should keep the festival or the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of sloth and wickedness, but with unleavened sincerity and truth. So Christians should still be keeping the Passover, not Easter, not the pagan fertility festival with the bunnies and the eggs and all the symbols of fertility. Easter actually comes from the same word that Esther comes from, that Ishtar comes from, the fertility goddess of the Babylonians. Mark 14, verse 17. And when it becoming late, he comes with the twelve. And upon their reclining and eating, Yahshua said, Truly I say to you that one from among you who is eating with me shall betray me. They began to grieve and to say to him, one by one, is it I? Is it I? Then he said to them, one of the twelve, he dipping with me into the same bowl. Because indeed the Son of Man shall go just as it is written concerning him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is handed over. It is good for him if that man had not been born. Yeah, you know, let me make a, a, a side note here. In the Christian New Testament, you also you often see that word reclining, what where it might be um, sitting or dining in, in in other translations. The I chose that word because it really does literally mean reclining. The verb anaklino means to recline, and, and that. The Greeks used that verb because they did not eat at a table. If we look at all of their temple illustrations and all of the paintings they left us, the Greeks did not sit at the table and eat. I'm sorry, that picture of the Last Supper, who, who did that, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, I don't know, one of those guys, right? That picture of the Last Supper is just historically wrong. 
the Greeks reclined at meals, meaning that they, they often ate on, on like, couches. And, and sometimes they would have tables in front of them to place their food. But that's why you see that verb reclining, because that's the verb that the apostles used. So, so the picture of the Last Supper isn't quite historical, right? It, it might be historical to the Middle Ages, but not to the not, not to the Greco-Roman period. Records of this event are found in all four Gospels: the event of Christ and 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 his brethren at the Passover meal, and Christ informing them that there was a betrayer at the table or, or at the meal with them, I'm making the same mistake, right? The differences in the accounts reflecting the way in which each of the four recorders not only heard the things that were done and said, but also the way that each of them understood those things, that also serves to prove the veracity of the Gospels rather than disproving it. These words in Matthew chapter 26 are much the same as they are here, yet in John the version is very different. And while Matthew may have missed it because of the way the group, there was a large group and they weren't all on the same couch or they weren't all at the same table. While Matthew may have missed it and Peter through Mark leaves it unrecorded, Peter is described in, in the Gospel of John as having urged John to ask Yahshua who it was that he was that he meant. There are other aspects of the Last Supper recorded in John which are not in the other Gospels. Among them is the washing of the feet of the disciples by Christ. Luke repeats some of the things which Christ said after the washing of the feet concerning servants and masters, which John also recorded. However, only John records the washing of the feet. This does not mean that the things which John recorded differently did not happen. It only means that John felt that they were important to relate later on, where the other apostles did not feel that they were that important, that they were important enough to record, because they didn't record them. There are many places in the Psalms and the Prophets which tell us of the sufferings to befall the Christ. When the Gospel of Matthew was presented here a few months ago, Isaiah chapter 53 was read at this point. That prophecy not only foretells of his suffering, but also demonstrates that Yahshua suffered these things on behalf of the children of Israel alone and for none others. Here, reading Psalm 22, we shall see that same thing. From the King James Version. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see that when he's, on the, when he's on the cross, right? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and you did deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. As we see in Isaiah chapter 53, that Christ would also be despised of the people. 
All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And we see those words recorded at the crucifixion of Christ. And those actions attributed to the people of Jerusalem. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. We see all these things fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ, and all these things were referenced in the crucifixion of Christ, and recorded by the apostles as having happened historically. But be thou not far from me, O Yahweh, my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. David is begging to be delivered from the power of the dog, from the, non, from the non-Israelite people, and from the people of Canaan. They are the people whom David fought against, generally. Even when he was fighting Saul, Saul looked for a man to slay the priests of Yahweh and could find none, because he didn't like what they were telling him. Doeg the Edomite, or Doeg the Edomite, 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. Doeg the Edomite was more than happy. The Edomite was more than happy to slay the priests of Yahweh for the king. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog, as Christ called the Canaanite woman a dog. He was only telling the truth. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear of Yahweh, praise him. All ye seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye seed of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted, neither has he hid his face from him. But he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. And there will only be Israelites in that great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise Yahweh to seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto Yahweh. And all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be sat upon the earth shall eat and shall worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep his soul his own alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him, it shall be accounted to Yahweh for a generation. Now that word is the Hebrew word door. 
it means a dwelling or a habitation. That Yahweh shall set his tabernacle among the children of Israel is promised in many of the prophecies. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he has done this. In the context of David's times, the other nations are the other white Adamic Genesis 10 nations. And now to repeat Mark 14:21, because indeed the Son of Man shall go just as it is written concerning him. And here we have Psalm 22. And there are many other prophecies. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is handed over. It is good for him if the man had not been born. We have it in 1 Enoch chapter 38, verse 2, where it says, And when the righteous one shall appear before the eyes of the righteous, whose elect works hang upon the Lord of spirits, and the light shall appear to the righteous, and the elect who dwell upon the earth. Remember, John said that Christ was the light that comes into the world. Where then will be the dwelling of the sinners? And where the resting place of those who have denied the Lord of Spirits? It had been good for them if they had not been born. And so we have Christ basically making a reference to Enoch. An extremely similar one. Mark 14, verse 22. And upon their reading, taking a loaf, Blessing he broke and gave it to them and said, You take this, this is my body. And taking a cup, giving thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is being poured out on behalf of many, many Israelites. Truly I say to you that by no means shall I any longer drink from of the produce of the vine until that day when I shall drink it anew in the kingdom of Yahweh. John did not even think that it was important enough to record this event of Yahshua's breaking the bread and distributing the wine at the table. And John wrote his gospel 60 years after the crucifixion, according to all historical accounts. That alone diminishes any credibility that this event has as a ritual compulsory for salvation. That's not the meaning of this event. That is a ridiculous Romish church contrivance. The professional priests sought to create necessary rituals out of the scripture in order to justify their professions, and today most Christians still follow them. The account in Matthew is very much like the account given here by Mark. Here I will read Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour had come, he reclined, And the ambassadors, or the apostles, with him, and he said to them, With longing have I desired to eat this Passover with you before that which I am to suffer. For I say to you that by no means shall I eat this until when it shall be fulfilled in the kingdom of Yahweh. So he probably said he wouldn't eat it, and he probably said he wouldn't drink the wine. And one apostle recorded one thing, and one apostle recorded another. And taking a cup, blessing it, he said, Take this and divide it for yourselves, for I say to you that by no means shall I drink from the produce of the vine from now until when the kingdom of Yahweh should come. 
And taking bread, blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which on behalf of you is being given. This you do for my recollection. And in like manner, the cup while eating, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant by my blood, which on your behalf is being spilled. Now, there is nothing in Luke that would make this a compulsory ritual and the commandment relating to salvation for Christians. That's only Catholic. That's not scriptural. Rather, Luke only repeated the words of Christ, which the other Gospels did not even record, which is, this you do for my recollection. Now we shall see how Paul interpreted these words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul asked, and I'll read from verse 16, The cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, we the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf. That word, which is translated communion in the King James Version, is the common Greek word which means fellowship. At 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, Paul asked, Now, do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? And this was in response to what he said in verse 20, that of your gathering into one place, it is not to eat the supper of the Lord. Christians did not gather publicly for communion. Rather, just as with Christ and the apostles, communion was a private meal shared in one's own home with one's own kith and kin. The word communion simply means in Greek, something which is shared in common. Something which you share with your household, your friends, your brethren, whoever. Paul said, from 1 Corinthians 11:23, For I have received from the Lord that which I have also transmitted to you, that Prince Joshua, in the night in which he had been handed over, took wheat bread, and giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This you do in remembrance of me. In like manner also the cup, along with dinner, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This you do as often as you may drink it in remembrance of me. Indeed, as often as you may eat this wheat bread and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince of Christ until he should come. So every meal, every meal that a Christian has is communion. We share with our brethren and we give thanks to God. That is all that is asked of us. The false Roman church communion ritual only makes an excuse to have a professional priesthood that they may rule over our faith. However, none of that is scriptural. Mark 14, verse 26. And singing hymns, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Joshua says to them that all shall be made to stumble, because it is written, I shall smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Zechariah chapter 13 is an end-time prophecy. However, I believe that it describes the entire last 2,000 years. Both Paul in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 and Peter in 1 Peter 1.20 profess that this last age, all this time since Christ, is indeed the 
quote-unquote last times. Let me say as an aside that in Hebrew, the word akarith, which is often translated the last days, the last times, we see it in Genesis chapter 49. It simply means the future. It's a Hebrew way of saying the future. That's all it is. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 1, On many occasions and in many ways in past times, Yahweh had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. At the end of these days, meaning his present time and ours also, he speaks to us by a son, whom he has appointed the heir of all, through whom he also made the ages. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, but has appointed, uh, I'm sorry, but with the precious blood of Christ, of, of Christ as a lamb blameless and spotless, indeed having been foreknown before the foundation of society, but being made manifest upon the last times on account of you. Those through him, those who through him believe in Yahweh, who has raised him from among the dead and has given honor to him, consequently your faith and hope to be in Yahweh. So we see that the apostles envisioned this whole age to be the last times. On, on a grand scale, we hope it is. Uh, I mean, if the creation of Adam was, according to the Septuagint chronology, several centuries before 5000 B.C., then we are in the last times, and we have been for quite some time. The later times, the future times, is what the apostle means. That's the Hebrew word, akarith. And that's proven by looking at its usage in Genesis chapter 49, the promises made to Israel, to the sons of Jacob, by Jacob himself. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 and 8 say, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith Yahweh of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all that in all the land, saith Yahweh, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, and the third shall be left therein. We've seen that of the Adamic Lycumene to a great extent, if you look at Europe and Asia, and, and the lands in Africa, and the lands and nations that used to be white and aren't white anymore. Remember that Zechariah wrote his prophecies long after the deportations of all of Israel and nearly all of Judah. Much of our race has already been destroyed. All of the former Genesis 10 white nations, they've all been mongrelized. And most of the revelation of Christ has already unfolded. Still more of us may be destroyed by the enemies of our God, but we are promised a third for a remnant. We pray he returns soon. Mark 14, verse 28. But after what it takes for me to be raised, I shall go before you into Galilee. Then Peter says to him, If even all are made to stumble, yet not I. And Yahshua says to him, Truly I say to you today, that today on this night, before a cock crows twice, three times you shall deny me. But more exceedingly, he said, if it should be necessary for me to die with you, by no means shall I deny you. Then likewise, also, they all spoke. Peter, 
was evidently the most stubborn of the apostles. He argued with Christ earlier in his ministry, and Christ barked at him, Get behind me, Satan, meaning get behind me, adversary. Yet even here, he has not yet learned to refrain from arguing with his master. And for this, Peter was committed to hearing everything that he was told three times. Three times, as it is recorded in the last chapter of John, did Joshua ask Peter if he loved him. This is after the resurrection. And he demanded that he therefore feed his sheep. Peter expressed annoyance at the repetition. Oh, Lord, you know that I love you. Likewise, three times, Peter had to see the four-cornered sheep come down from heaven in Acts chapter 10. It's the same here, where Peter was told that he would deny Christ, and he disputed it. For that reason, he had to endure that very thing three times. Peter remained stubborn. Among Yahshua's last recorded words to him are these from John 22, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girt yourself and walked about wherever you wished. But when you should grow old, you shall extend your hand, and another shall gird you and bring you where you do not wish. Mark fourteen thirty two. And they came into a place of which the name is Gethsemane. And he says to his students, sit here while I shall pray. And he takes Peter and Jacob and John with him. And he began to be terrified and to be troubled. And he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even unto death. Remain here and stay awake. And having gone forth a little, he fell upon the ground and prayed, that if it is possible, the hour should pass from him. And he said, Abba, Abba is actually a Hebrew word which means father. Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Set aside this cup from me. Yet it is not what I desire, but what you desire. And he comes and finds them sleeping and says to Peter, Simon, you sleep. Are you not able for one hour to stay awake? Stay awake and pray that you should not enter into trial. Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, having departed, he prayed, saying the same word. And again, having come, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were weighed down, and they did not know what they could reply to him. And he comes for a third time, and he says to them, You sleep? Finally, finally then, are you rested? I translate that as a rhetorical question. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of wrongdoers. Arise, we must go. Behold, he who is betraying me is near. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God come in the flesh, is one of his own sons. And the gospel accounts in the Old Testament prophecies are replete with the proofs of that statement. Yet, without a parable, he did not speak to men, and everything that he said and did were an example to men. His actions were performed as an example for us. They were for our benefit. So here, where he prays, it is for an example to men. It is for our edification. He himself 
does not need edification. Here he prays that he would rather not suffer. But whatever is the will of God, that is what he would do. That, too, should be our example and our own model for when we pray concerning ourselves. That the apostles could not keep themselves awake at his beckoning fully demonstrates the salability of man. Not even those who were closest to God could remain alert for him in his mission. If we do not keep our minds fixed on what God may desire for us, which we may only find through prayer and through his written word, then we may easily enter into earthly temptation and trial. And even if the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. For that reason, Paul told us that we must exercise our bodies for godliness, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The episode of prayer demonstrates how quickly Yahshua accepted the word of God, since his circumstances had not changed in a short period of time between the three prayers. He tells us that he knows that he must proceed and allow himself to face the coming hardship, which is his crucifixion. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 19, from the Septuagint. What shall I render to Yahweh for all the things wherein he has rewarded me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. O Yahweh, I am thy servant, I am thy servant, and the son of thine handmaid, thou hast burst my bonds asunder. I will offer to thee in the sacrifice of praise. I will call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh in the presence of all his people, in the courts of Yahweh's house, in the midst of thee, Jerusalem. We see in the gospel that Christ indeed fulfilled all of those words of David. Verse 43. And immediately upon his arriving, Judas arrives, one of the twelve, I'm sorry, upon his speaking, Judas arrives, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the high priests and the scribes and the elders. And there's a parenthetical statement here in verse 44. And he who is betraying him gave to them a signal saying, he whom I should kiss as he sees and lead him away securely. And having come, immediately coming forth to him, he says, Rabbi, and he kissed him. You know, at one time, men greeted each other with a kiss on the cheek, and nobody thought wickedly of it. Today, in our perverted Judaized world, deviant thoughts would rush through the minds of most observers. There is a similar account in Scripture, but with different circumstances, where Joab, the captain of David's army, slew Amasa, the captain of the army of Absalom, when he tried to overthrow David, his father, with a kiss on the cheek, on the cheek and a knife to the belly. That story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Nobody would doubt a man's manliness or, or his sexual proclivities at that time. And today, our minds have been trained by the perverted rabbi in the living room Screaming at us day and night, the television, to suspect mischief whenever we see such a thing. 
Mark 14, verse 46. Then they threw the hands upon him and seized him. Then a certain one of those who stood nearby, drawing the sword, smote the servant of the high priest and took off his ear. It is quite likely that Peter's own modesty prevented the entire story from being related here, since this did come through Peter, through Mark, from Peter through Mark, I'm sorry. In John 18, verse 10, this account is related in more detail, and we learn that it was Peter who drew the sword and attacked the servants of the high priest. In Matthew chapter 26, where a longer version of the events here are also described, Christ forebodes the apostles from putting up a defense and asks them that if they were to resist, how then would the writings be fulfilled that thusly it is necessary to happen? Matthew 26, 54. Mark 14, 48. And responding, Yahshua said to them, As for a robber, have you come out with swords and clubs to take me? Each day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But it is in order that the writings should be fulfilled. And leaving him, they all fled, meaning the apostles. John 16, 32 says, Behold, the hour comes and has come that you shall all be scattered, each to his own affairs, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Here in Mark 14.27 and also in Matthew 26.31, it is recorded that Christ warned the apostles, you shall all be made to stumble by me on this night, and here we see it. Mark 14.51, and a certain youth who had followed him had been wrapped in a linen cloth, for he was naked, and they seized him. But leaving behind the linen cloth, he fled. This youth can't be Peter or John, as we shall see below. They both followed Joshua to the home of the high priest. And if either of them were naked, well, that would have created quite a spectacle for which the text does not allow. Some commentators... And I think I actually read this long ago in a paper written by Bertrand Compare. Some commentators believe that this was Mark himself, who, in that humility often exhibited by other apostles, purposely neglected to mention his own name, calling himself a certain youth. This is not proven, but I think Compare was right, personally. It's very possible, since Mark was indeed a disciple from an early time. He wasn't one of the original twelve. But if he is indeed the John, whose surname is Mark, of Acts chapters 12 and 15, then he was certainly a disciple at an early time. In Acts chapter 12, Peter goes to the home of John Mark, where the disciples had been gathered, praying on his behalf after he escapes from prison. Mark later traveled with Paul and Barnabas, and after Paul was dissatisfied with his initiative, he and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, went their separate ways, and Mark stayed with Barnabas. This might very well be all the same Mark that we see later on with Peter in Babylon, as Peter states in his epistles. And the Mark, which, of course, recorded for us the Gospel of Peter, which I spoke of at length, when I began the series several weeks ago. Mark 14, verse 53. And they brought Joshua off to the high priest, and all the high priests and the elders and the scribes gathered to hear him. 
And Petros, from afar, had followed him until inside in the court of the high priest, and he was sitting together with the deputies and warming himself by the fire. Peter was witnessing this event. Matthew's account includes a few more details where the high priest, Caiaphas is actually named, but otherwise Matthew's account is very much like Mark's account here. John's version of this account is much more complete in several respects. There they brought Joshua to Annas first, Annas being Caiaphas' father-in-law and the former high priest himself. In John's version, an unnamed disciple accompanied Peter. And only by that unnamed disciple did Peter gain access to the court of the high priest, since that unnamed disciple knew the servant of the high priest who kept the door. That must be how that servant later accused Peter of being a disciple of Joshua's. The unnamed disciple of John's account must have been John himself. That doesn't mean that Mark is wrong. Mark only concentrated, only focused Peter when he gave this account to Mark, only focused on Peter's actions here. And Matthew only focuses on Peter's whereabouts and his actions here. John talks about this unnamed disciple, disciple, and that unnamed disciple must have been John himself, because John never mentioned his own name in reference to himself until the revelation of Yahshua Christ was recorded by him. Unrecorded by the other gospel writers, from the gospel of John we learn that John, which is only inferred because the apostle never referred to himself by name, had actually accompanied Peter in following those who seized Yahshua to the house of the high priest and that John was instrumental in getting Peter inside. Here I will read John chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Now Simon Peter and another student, another disciple, had followed Yahshua, and that student was known by the high priest, and he entered in with Yahshua into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside by the door. Then the other student, he known by the high priest, went out and spoke with the doorkeeper, and he brought Petros in. And therefore the doorkeeper, a servant girl, says to Peter, Petros, Are you also one of the students of this man? He says, I am not. The first denial. Then the servants and the deputies, having made a charcoal fire because it was cold, stood in, they warmed themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Of course, at that point we lose John in the dialogue. Mark 14, verse 55 then the high priests and the whole council sought testimony against Joshua for which to kill him, and they found it not. For many had testified falsely against him, and the testimonies were not the same. You know, even a kangaroo court needs to maintain a pretense of justice. That's why witnesses were beat and tortured before Nuremberg, so that it would look like they, they were telling the truth and agreeing with each other, right? Therefore, even a kangaroo court needs consistent testimony. Psalm 27.12 says, Deliver me not over under the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. And we see Christ suffer that very thing here. Mark 14.57 And some arising gave false testimony against him, saying, that we have heard him saying, I shall destroy this temple made by hand, and after three days I shall build another not made by hand. 
Yet not even thus was their testimony the same. From the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 18, we read, Therefore the Judeans responded and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Yahshua replied and said to them, You destroyed this temple, and in three days I shall raise it. Therefore the Judeans said, Forty-six years, that's the time of Herod when he rebuilt the temple, Forty-six years to build this temple, and you shall raise it in three days? And John makes a parenthetical statement in John 2.21, where he says, But he had spoken concerning the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his students remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the writing and in the word which Joshua spoke. It must be that he planned it from the beginning, that this would be the false accusation by which the Jews executed him. He used those who were his enemies, to destroy the real temple, the Adamic body, which is the very temple in which Yahweh came to redeem Israel, thereby effecting that redemption. In Jeremiah 50, verses 27 and 28, Slay all her bullocks, let them go down to the slaughter, woe unto them, for their day is come, the time of their visitation. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of Yahweh our God, the vengeance of his temple. We await this vengeance today. Matthew 14, verse 60. And the high priest, arising into the midst, questioned Yahshua, saying, Would you not answer anything to what they testify against you? But he was silent and did not reply anything. Yahshua made no defense against their false accusations in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, where it is written, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Back to Mark. Again, the high priest questioned him and says to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Then Yahshua said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The reply of Yahshua is recorded somewhat differently by Matthew in chapter 26, verse 64, where it says that Yahshua says to him, You have spoken. But I say to you, from this time you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Some later manuscripts of the Greek of Mark add the words, you have said that, to Yahshua's statement as it is recorded in Mark 14.62 here, in order to make it agree with Matthew. However, those manuscripts have no ancient authority for the interpolation. In any case, Yahshua merely expresses agreement with the words of the high priest and does not speak them himself. The answer by Christ calls to mind several scriptures. Daniel 7.13 I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Psalm 110, verse 1 Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And Enoch 1-9, 1 Enoch 1-9, 1 
And behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly, all of those without Yahweh as their God, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and all of the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Mark fourteen sixty three, And the high priest, having torn his garment, says, Why do we have further need of testimonies? You have heard the blasphemy. What does it appear to you? Then they all judged him to be liable for death. All throughout, the account of Mark here is very much like that found in Matthew chapter 26. The high priest and those with him wanted to see Christ dead under any circumstances. In fact, Yahshua said, nothing that could be construed as blasphemy. This is why the seed of the serpent is considered to be the devil. And the word devil in the original Greek is diabolos, which means false accuser. In the Revelation, these people are called the accuser of our brethren in the collective sense. The accuser of our brethren has been cast down. We await that day. Mark 14.65 And some people began to spit at him, and to put a cover around his face and to beat him, and to say to him, Prophecy! And the deputies with blows took him. Their challenge to him indicates that he was indeed accredited with the ability to do such things as a matter of his reputation. In Matthew 26:67, this is recorded a little differently again, where it says, Prophe- Prophecy to us, Christ, who is it who is hitting you? Thereby admitting that he was indeed the Christ, yet they still hated him. Christ had warned the apostles at Mark 10.33 and 10.34, events which occurred sometime before this, that, behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be handed over to the high priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall hand him over to the heathens, and they shall mock him and spit upon him and whip him and slay him, and after three days he shall arise. Mark 14.66 And Peter being down in the court, one of the servant girls of the high priest comes, and seeing Peter, warning himself, Looking at him, she says, You also were with the Nazarene, Yahshua. But he denied it, saying, Neither do I know, nor do I understand what you say. And he went outside into the front yard, and a cock crowed. And the servant girl, seeing him, said to those who stood nearby that, He is from among them. But again he denied it. And after a while, those who stood nearby again said to Peter, Truly you are from among them, for you are also a Galilean. But he began to curse and to swear that I do not know this man whom you speak of. And immediately a cock crowed for a second time. And Peter remembered the word as Joshua spoke to him, that before a cock crows twice, three times you shall deny me. And considering it, he wept. Yahshua was called the Nazorian after the city Nazareth, where he was raised. The word Nazareth is from a Hebrew word, which means branch. That word gave its name to the city of Nazareth. 
This is the literal fulfillment of the prophecy that Joshua would be called the branch, as it is found in Zechariah chapters 3 and 6. But the word has no direct link to the ancient sect of the Nazarites found in Numbers chapter 6 and Judges chapter 13. That's wishful thinking on the part of some commentators. At Matthew 26.73, it's recorded as having been said to Peter that truly you also are from among them, even your speech makes you conspicuous. Either way, it is shown by these testimonies that the Galileans were distinct people from the people of Jerusalem. That the record is that the servant girl could tell a Galilean apart by speech, or by look. Where Matthew says by speech, Mark doesn't really record that. We see that Peter denied Christ three times, just as Christ had told him that he would. In spite of Peter's own assertions that he would never do such a thing. How many of us when confronted by the world, or the beliefs of the world, or our emotions for the world, our emotions for people in the world, how many of us would forsake or even deny the true message of Scripture in order to maintain our comfort in the world? Many of us, even those of us who should know better, those who claim to be Christian Israel identity regularly do just that. Sadly, few men can see that. Thank you for listening tonight. I will be back next Friday with Mark chapter 15 and, and 16, because that will be a short one. And, and um, I will be here tomorrow night. I'm going to cover my, my, my historical essay, Trojan Roman Judah. And I will add to it an exposition of Romans chapter 11 and the grasping in of the wild olives into the good olive trees and what that really means. Praise Yahweh and good night. God bless you all.